I would like to call your attention now to the first epistle of John, chapter 1. First John, chapter 1. We read from this portion earlier, and we want to look at verses 3 and 4 in particular and take this as a text now. 1 John 1, 3, That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things write we unto you, that your joy may be full. May God bless the reading of his word now and always to our hearts. John was one of many first-hand witnesses to the incarnation of the Son of God on this earth. And he says in these opening two verses that he was among those who heard the Lord Jesus Christ while he was as a man upon earth. He was one who saw him, looked upon him, and also touched him, handled him. John was not only one of many first-hand witnesses to the ministry of Christ, but John was one of a smaller collection known as apostles who were chosen by Christ for the specific purpose of telling and reporting, giving witness to his life and his ministry. As he says in verse 2, we bear witness, we show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us, that is manifested in the person of Jesus Christ. You may recall Jesus had said to these apostles, ye shall be witnesses unto me. And that's exactly what they were. And they bore witness everywhere they went, including leaving a permanent record in the writing of the New Testament. John bore witness in the gospel that bears his name. He bore witness in these three short letters that bear his name, as well as in the book of Revelation, which was given to him. And so he gives us here in the opening verses of this letter his purpose in writing. It's actually a double purpose that really converges uh, into one 
But he tells us, first of all, in verse 3, that which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, that, here's the purpose, that ye also may have fellowship with us. And I take that to mean fellowship with the apostles in particular. The ones who were the eyewitnesses and the ones who were given the specific charge and duty to bear witness to all the world. He says, I'm writing because I want you to have fellowship with us. And we want to focus in some today on this word fellowship. It's a very interesting word. It's a very rich word as far as meaning is concerned. Those that are interested in things linguistic probably already know that the the root word here is the word common. Fellowship is things that we have in common, things that we share together, common things that are held And the word is used in many different passages and different contexts in the New Testament. And it's translated different ways. Sometimes it's translated communion and communication in the sense of sharing and communicating in, not in a, in a verbal way, but in a, a way of dollars and cents, we might say. One of the most interesting uses of the term fellowship is describing the the fishing business that John was actually a part of when the Lord called him to be his disciple and his apostle. And it, it, it is stated this way in the Gospel of Luke. <clears throat> There was a James and John, the sons of Zebedee, which were partners with Simon. And partners is the same root word as, as fellowship. They might say, we might say they were fellowshippers with Simon and so on. So these three men had some kind of a, a business agreement and they were working together in this fishing business. They had a fellowship in that business. They had a partnership. There was a participation on the part of all three of them. And when the word is used in reference to saints in the early church that had means to help those who were in need, the same term is used. There was a fellowship, a, a, a helping. In fact, the word is sometimes translated contribution on the one hand and distribution on the other. Those who had were giving so that it might be distributed to those who were in need and so on. The word again is translated communion and communication in the sense of sharing. So you get the kind of the wide range of usage of this word. Partnership, sharing, 
things in common. So John says, I'm writing this letter because I want you to share something in common with me. I want you to have fellowship with us. Now perhaps some unknowing reader would say, well, why would I want John's company? Why would I want his friendship and and partnership with John? Who is he? What does he have to offer? Why is he so important? And John answers that in a way in what he says next. He says, truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Here's why we should desire fellowship with John, because John was in fellowship with God. In and of himself, John was a nobody. As I said a moment ago, he was just a small-town fisherman. But he had an encounter with the Son of God in the flesh, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus had chosen him, had chosen John to be his disciple. He had revealed himself to John and revealed his salvation to John. And so John became a close follower. In a way, he was arguably the closest disciple, the closest earthly friend that Jesus had. He leaned upon his breast there in the upper room at the supper table. John observed everything Jesus did for the years of his public ministry. He heard everything that he said. He, he, he saw all of these things. He observed the death of Christ on the cross of Calvary. He discovered the empty tomb on resurrection day. He saw him in person on that day and various times thereafter until he ascended up into heaven. And John was there when he ascended up into heaven also. John was privileged to be brought into this close fellowship, this communion, this partnership in a sense. With Christ, he was brought into having things in common with Jesus. And that's why he deserves a hearing, and that's why his letter ought to be read and reread and believed and relished by every one of us. John's only real dignity was his connection to God the Father and God the Son. John's claim to be heard is all because of his connection with God the Father and God the Son. And may I say in way of application, it is so today also. With any who preach the gospel or proclaim it in any way, we deserve a hearing, not because of who we are, 
but because of the connection that we have with God and the communion, the fellowship that we have with Him. And though John opens this letter talking about what was true in in times past, because Jesus had ascended into heaven. He was no longer on earth at this time. (coughs) So John says, we have heard him in the past. We have seen him. We have touched him. But notice what he says here in verse 3 is in the present tense. And though the verb is supplied, it it captures the, the, the present tense emphasis of this passage. He says, truly our fellowship is with the Father. It's not just a matter, our fellowship was with him, and now it's over. No, it's an ongoing communion of things in common with God through Jesus Christ. And so John presents here two dimensions of fellowship. First of all is fellowship with us. And I take that to mean fellowship, as we would say, on a horizontal level between one person and another person. And he says, we want you to have fellowship with us because our fellowship is vertical. It is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And it's very important for us to recognize these two dimensions of fellowship And so he says, I'm writing these things for this purpose, that you may have fellowship with us and, moreover, fellowship with God himself. (coughs) The second purpose he gives in verse 4, these things write we unto you, that your joy may be full. He's writing these things not so that his readers will be sad, discouraged, but to encourage for them to be profoundly happy, joyous. The purpose of the Christian religion is not to make people sad and miserable though that caricature is sometimes drawn by the enemies of the gospel. Like, oh, if you become a Christian, you you lose all your fun. And life is so sad and, and, and boring and you can't have any fun. No, the truth is, <clears throat> true, full joy is found only in Christ and in knowing God through Christ, his son. And this is the purpose for which John wrote this letter. We might even add what he says in chapter 2, verse 1, these things write I unto you that ye sin not. Well, this, this is all saying the same thing. Living a holy life, being in fellowship with God, having fullness of joy. These, all these different purposes that he states for writing the letter all converge in this one principle. Let me put it this way. 
Fullness of joy is found in fellowship with the true and living God. Full joy is found in fellowship with God the Father and God the Son. And that brings us then into fellowship with others on this earth who also know him and who have fellowship with him. And just because the Holy Spirit is not mentioned here in verse 3, we shouldn't assume that there is not also that dimension of fellowship. 2 Corinthians thirteen fourteen speaks of the communion of the Holy Ghost. And so it is a communion with the triune God. So having sort of set the stage here for this subject of fellowship with God and the fellowship with saints that results from fellowship with God, I just want to make a series of observations here and applications. First of all, Fellowship with God is not our natural state. We are not born in fellowship with God. We must be born again to be in fellowship with God. The way we are born is out of fellowship with God. But we go back to the very beginning. God made the first man, Adam, And he made Adam in fellowship with him to have things in common with God. But Adam fell from that happy state and fell into a very unhappy state. He disobeyed God and fell into sin and came under God's curse for his sin. The fellowship with God was broken, destroyed, lost. Instead of being in agreement with God and having things in common with God, he came to be in disagreement with God and had more in common with Satan than with God. And all who have descended from Adam, and that's you and me today, we are born in that state of being separated, estranged, from God, at enmity against Him, enemies of God. We naturally view Him as a threat to our independency and our pleasure. And like Adam in the Garden of Eden there after he had sinned, we want to hide from God and run from God. The only God that we run to naturally, is a false god, a god of our own imagination, a god that only has the character that we want him to have. We're happy to have that god, but the god of Scripture, we don't want. We don't want fellowship with him. As long as God resembles Santa Claus, yes, that's the god we want. But not this holy, holy, holy God of Scripture. So none of us is naturally in fellowship with God. 
we are rather in fellowship with sin. The friendship of the world is enmity with God. Whosoever will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. And so fellowship with God is only possible by fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ. Because His Son, Jesus Christ, is the reconciler. He is the one who has taken away the enmity. He has, He is the one who changes our hearts so that we desire fellowship with God. And He is the one who answers the demands of divine justice to satisfy God's righteous wrath against us. Fellowship with God the Father is only possible by fellowship with God the Son. Knowing Him as our mediator, as our reconciler, the one who suffered the penalty of death in order to redeem us from death. The one who suffered estrangement from God on the cross so that we might be restored into fellowship with God. And I'm saying it all this way in order to emphasize this point. Apart from Christ, there's no fellowship with God. There are religions and there are people with their own homemade uh, systems of belief today who think that they can be in fellowship with God and bypass Jesus Christ. They say, I believe in God. I'm not sure about all that stuff about Jesus. Listen, you cannot have fellowship with the Father unless you have fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the one who makes the way. He is the one who is the way. The only way. He said, I am the way the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. And those who bypass Jesus and claim to have friendship with God are simply deceived. God holds fellowship only with those who come to Him by Christ. Another thing to consider is this. Fellowship with God brings us into fellowship with others who are also in fellowship with God. We come to have things in common with God. And that brings us then to have things in common with others who have things in common with God. And When Jesus was upon this earth, he established an institution for this very purpose. And he calls it my church. The assembling of believers in Christ. And we see that again here in our text so clearly. John says, I'm... Declaring these things to you that ye may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. 
We cannot bypass God's institution and be in obedience to his will. There must be commitment, faithfulness, participation, partnership. The, the, the very definition of fellowship is, is what church life is all about. Having these things in common and gathering to, to build up in these things. We are not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Church fellowship, church commitment is essential to a healthy Christian life. But let me mention yet another thing. If you're numbering these, this is number four. Fellowship with other believers is much easier for us to comprehend than the concept of fellowship with God. That is because fellowship requires commonalities, things in common, common interests, a common nature. And so it's, it's much easier for us to understand having fellowship with a fellow Christian than it is to understand the, the whole concept of having fellowship with God. Because we understand that we have the same nature with one another. Can a man have fellowship with a housefly? No, you can't have fellowship with a housefly. Why? Because housefly doesn't have the same nature that you have. Doesn't have the same interests. <clears throat> a man cannot have fellowship with a dog, except in the areas in which they have things in common. You certainly have more in common with the dog than the housefly, I suppose. You may share the same shelter. He may learn some of your commands. You share food with him and so on. But you can only have fellowship with that pet at, at a very superficial level. It's very difficult to have fellowship with another human being uh, when there's a language barrier. Or, say, a person with eyesight cannot have fellowship with a blind person, at least on the level of things seen. Now, I, I know perhaps some of my blind friends may hear this message later on and I may have to uh, state it more accurately, but I hope you get the point. We can understand fellowship with each other in Christ, fellow Christians, because we have the things of Christ in common. We have a common faith. We have common experiences and trials and tribulations, struggles. We have common victories over these things. But how can we be said to have fellowship with God, things in common with God, when his nature is so different from ours? 
He is infinitely above us. He is separate, holy, distinct. He is infinitely transcendent over us. It almost seems an impropriety in a way to say, that we are in fellowship with God. And yet that is what John says. God in his downward reaching grace. Imparts to his people. Something of his nature. And I would point you to what Peter says just a page Back in Second Peter chapter 1 and verse 4. He says, Whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature. Whatever Peter is describing there is a reality. Being made a partaker of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Now, of course, Peter's not denying here what is plainly taught elsewhere in Scripture. We do not become little gods like some cults teach and some charismatics teach and so on. We do not become the essence of deity in any way, but we do come to have a common nature with God as redeemed believers in Christ in the sense that we delight in Him, we delight in what He delights in, we, as it says, escape the corruption that is in the world, and so on. We love what is pure and right and true, which is in agreement with God's character and God's nature. That which can be communicated to a creature from God is communicated to us. It is in that sense that we come to have a common nature with God. That which we as creatures have a capacity for, He freely gives to us of Himself. It's an amazing and marvelous thought. And so that brings us then to the heart of things. What what is fellowship with God? What is it to hold fellowship with God? If you had to had if you had an assignment to write down a definition of that, what would you write? Well, I've been picking brains of teachers that sit on my shelves and searching the word and I want to make at least some small attempt to describe and define what fellowship with God is and I must do so quickly I have 10 particulars and I must go quickly here to have fellowship with God first of all is to be reconciled to him It is to be at peace with Him. It is to be the friend of God, not the enemy of God. It is to be reconciled to Him judicially through union with Christ. 
so that God's case against you because of your sin has been settled because of Christ and what he has done. This is described in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 as being called unto the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. It's the same term used. Secondly, (coughs) fellowship with God is to have new life from him. It's to have his life in some measure imparted Unto you, where there was only spiritual death, now there is life. There is this this common principle. We come to have in common with God this thing called life. And he gives it to us and gives it to us forever. It's called everlasting life. The gift of God is everlasting life. Or eternal life, Romans 6.23. God gives us regeneration, new birth, new life. What one old writer famously called the life of God in the soul of man. This is fellowship with God. Thirdly, fellowship with God is to be adopted into his family. Adoption brings us into proximity brings us into closeness so that we have family matters in common. He who we only knew as an angry judge, we now know as a loving father. And we enjoy the rights and privileges of sons and daughters in his household. That brings us into fellowship with God. Even more specifically, perhaps, fourthly, to be in fellowship with God is to be in mutual love with Him. He loves us, and He loved us first. But we reciprocate His love, and we love Him because He first loved us. It's compared in Scripture to the love of husband and wife, or the the love of bride and groom. Intimate Sharing of things in common. The fellowship of love. Fifthly, to be in fellowship with God is to be in agreement with Him as to His desires, His purposes, His thoughts, His plans, His decree, His providence, His will, His rule. To be in fellowship with God, in other words, is to be in submission to him as Lord. After all, he's not going to change his plans to fit your plans. You're going to have to change your plans to fit his plans. And that is fellowship with him at that level. That we have the same interest and aim and purpose as he, and namely, his glory, his honor. We come to be of one mind with him. Like Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus, we say, Lord, what do you want me to do? 
I'm tired of doing what I want to do. What do you want me to do? What is your will for me? Or in the words of our Lord himself, as a 12-year-old in the temple, I must be about my father's business. That's fellowship with God, isn't it? Sixthly, it is to be walking in holiness. I mentioned, first of all, our, our judicial legal standing with God. This comes in, to address our very experience and how we live and walk, our life that we live. We want to be like Christ as much as we can be by His enabling and John addresses this right here in chapter 1. If we say that we have fellowship with him in verse 6 and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. How do we walk? If we walk in the light, that is the light of truth and the light of his will and obedience to it, we have fellowship one with another. And I take that to mean we have fellowship with God. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sin. In fact, the whole letter of 1 John, in a way, is written to, to emphasize this, this point. Walking as Christ walked, walking in obedience and holiness. But I, I hasten on. Number seven, fellowship with God is to be worshiping him. And when I say worship... I'm not talking about the sense that all of life is is worship in in a broad and general sense, but more specific acts of communing with him, holding common time with him in prayer, communicating with him in prayer, and fellowshipping with him in his word and in public worship gathering with others so that we might worship him together in spirit and in truth. This is fellowship with God. Eighthly, it is to endeavor to bring into fellowship those who are not. This was John's concern. He says again here in our text, we declare what we've seen and heard so that ye also may have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the father and with his son jesus christ fellowship with god is at least manifested in evangelistic concern and zeal concern for the souls of others we don't want hoard this joy to ourselves we want to see others enjoy it also we want to share it we want to have it in common ninthly to be in fellowship with god is to be willing to suffer for his sake and the same term is used in a couple of passages Paul speaks of his, of his own sufferings as the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. He says, I have this in common with Christ. He suffered and I suffer. Now, of course, the purpose of Christ's sufferings were salvific, redemptive. 
Paul's were not. But nonetheless, Paul knew something about bodily suffering as Christ knew. And Peter calls it being a partaker of Christ's sufferings. And that's the same root word as fellowship, a fellowship with Christ in suffering. And tenthly, to be in fellowship with God is to be destined to share in glory yet to come. And notice again, just a page or two behind us here in in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 1, the terms that Peter uses here. The elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. And look at this, and also a partaker. That's the word, a fellowshipper of the glory that shall be revealed. Fellowship with God not only begins here and now, but it extends and improves in the world which is to come. Superlatively glorious, wonderful, pure joys await all those who are now in fellowship with God. And we get a a little taste of it, a foretaste of it, as the hymn writer says, here and now. But this is just an earnest. This is just a down payment. The full possession is yet to come. And I can't help but point out to you here how that Peter, back in 1 Peter 4, just a few lines earlier, in verse 13, speaks of being partakers of Christ's sufferings. Then in chapter 5, verse 1, speaks of being a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. And that's the order. In this life, we are partakers of His sufferings. In the life to come, we are partakers of His glory. That's fellowship with God, both now and hereafter. So John says he wrote these things that our joy might be full. Beloved, here is fullness of joy. To be in fellowship with God, to have things in common with God. And, as a result, to have things in common with his people, with other believers. It's a marvelous, blessed thing that God has done. So let me hasten to a couple of applications here, and then I have something I want to read. Are you in fellowship with God? Do you know what it is to be in fellowship with God? I can assure you that if you do not fellowship with God now, you will not fellowship with Him in eternity. You must enter into fellowship with Him now, through Christ, turning from your sin, being reconciled to Him by Christ, His blood and righteousness. Do not for a moment deny that you need fellowship with God. Don't pretend 
that you need no pardon and cleansing to have fellowship with God. John addresses that very directly here in chapter 1, verse 8, if we say that we have no sin. In other words, if we say that we're, all, we're, we're naturally in fellowship with God, he says we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us and so on. But rather we must confess our sins, plead the merits of Christ, and he will abundantly pardon. He will forgive. He will cleanse from all sin. He will bring you into fellowship with himself. And let me close then with this word to those who are believers. Let us seek to live more closely and to walk more closely in fellowship with God. Every day that we live, don't let a day pass without holding fellowship with God. And take advantage of every opportunity to hold fellowship with the people of God. John says, this is where you find fullness of joy, as full as it gets to mortals on this earth. And this fellowship admits of degrees, it may grow and grow and grow. And that brings me to conclude with a very interesting uh, couple of pages here that I want to take the time to read from a preacher named Edward Payson who was in Portland, Maine many years ago. And he, in a sermon on this text, sets out to describe as best as he can what fellowship with God is and the, the height of fellowship with God. Listen to these words. God is pleased at times to revive and strengthen the fainting spirits of his people with cordials of his love. He sends down the spirit of adoption into their hearts whereby they are enabled to cry, Abba, Father, and to feel like these filial affections of love, joy, trust, hope, reverence, and dependence, which is at once their duty and their happiness to exercise toward God. By the operation of the same spirit, he shines into their minds to give them the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, opens and applies to them his exceeding great and precious promises, makes them to know the great love wherewith he has loved them, and reveals to them those unutterable, inconceivable, and unheard of things which he has promised for those who love him. He also shines in upon their souls with the pure, dazzling, melting, overpowering beams of celestial mercy, grace, and love, displays to their enraptured view the glories and beauties of him who is the chief among ten thousand and altogether lovely, and gives them to know the heights and depths, the lengths and breadths of that love of Christ which passeth knowledge. 
This he gives them as great foretastes of heaven, as their feeble natures can support, fills their souls to the very brim with all the fullness of God, and makes them understand that peace of God which passes all understanding. On the other hand, the happy Christian in these bright enraptured moments, while he is thus basking in the beams of celestial light and splendor, forgets the world forgets himself, forgets his existence, and is wholly absorbed in the ravishing, the ecstatic contemplation of uncreated loveliness, glory, and beauty. He contemplates, he wonders, he admires, he loves, he adores. His whole soul goes forth in one intense flame of gratitude, admiration, love, and desire. And he longs to plunge himself into the boundless ocean of perfection, which opens to his view, and to be wholly swallowed up and lost in God. With an energy and activity unknown before, he roams and ranges through this ocean of perfection and glory, of power and wisdom, of truth and justice, of light and love, where he can find neither a bottom nor a shore. His soul dilates itself beyond its ordinary capacity and expands to receive the flood of happiness which overwhelms it. All its desires for earthly happiness are dried up and it no longer inquires, who will show me any good? The scanty thirst-producing streams of worldly delight only increase the feverish desires of the soul, the noisy, tumultuous transports and fancied raptures of the enthusiast, the visionary and fanatic, which proceed merely from the fervor of the passions and affections, soon die away and leave no fruit behind. But the tide of joy which flows in upon the Christian, when he thus enjoys communion with God, is as full, as constant, as unfathomable as the source from whence it flows." No language can do justice to his feelings, for his happiness is unutterable. But with an emphasis, a meaning, an expression which God only could excite, and which none but God can comprehend, he exclaims in broken accents, My Father, my God, whom have I in heaven but thee? And what can a miserable worm of the dust desire beside thee? Thus, my friends, have I endeavored to describe the nature of that communion with God, which in a greater or less degree every true Christian enjoys. End quote. That sounds like revival, doesn't it? And yet it is true that what we would think of as, in or, as ordinary, times every true Christian enjoys something of what Mr. Payson has so eloquently described may God help us to know it and to know it more and more